0: Welcome to Stock Stories, Episode 95. Welcome. Welcome to the Stock Stories podcast. My name is Alex and I am your host and stock storyteller for today. Thank you so much for joining me. Stock Stories is the podcast dedicated to helping you, the individual investor, make better investing decisions. And we do that by looking at case studies of real companies. We go through actual companies, Dig into their history, their financial statements, look at the fundamentals, and try to understand their valuation in order to figure out if they're a good potential investment or not. And then we also, on this show, look at mental models. What are the underlying ideas behind investing and, frankly, just behind better thinking? Because the philosophical side of investing is just as important as the practical Day to day side as well, so thank you so much for joining me today. And I'm excited we are nearing 100 episodes of this podcast. As crazy as it sounds, like wow, it's it's been almost two years now that we've been doing this. So thank you so much for listening for your for your continued listening support. And we're just gonna keep going through these companies and keep learning and keep growing as investors. So that's what I want to do with you is I'm growing in my own investing journey. And this podcast is really part of my way of sharing that journey with you and learning from you as well when when you guys send me messages. So I really appreciate all the feedback. So on this episode, we are going to tackle another company. Usually we talk about a company in S&P 500, but I want to diversify a little bit. I'm going to talk about a European company today. This company is one of the largest luxury conglomerates in the world. And once I started getting into their story, I had so much fun learning about where they came from and how the business actually works. I'm excited to share it with you today. Let's talk about Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy. Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy is one of the largest conglomerates in the world. It's a multinational luxury goods company. So it's a conglomerate structure. So basically they own lots and lots of brands and lots and lots of companies within the company. And that makes up the overall company of LVMH. So I'll refer to them as LVMH. So... LVMH, they have over 75 different maisons or houses. So this is a French company. It's based in France and it dates back all the way to the 14th century. (laughs) Hold up. This is a company that has brands that date back to the 14th century? Wow, I mean, I thought we had studied some old businesses on this show. I think the oldest one is probably either Sherwin Williams or Colgate Palmolive, dating back to the 1800s. But those are American companies, remember? Now, once we start expanding our investment horizons to companies outside of the United States, remember that capitalism has existed for centuries and centuries before America really took hold of it. Uh, And not in the way that it is today. Certainly certainly not like that. And America uh, definitely had a lot to do with the modern capitalist system. But as far as just businesses existing, businesses existed before America existed, certainly. And in Europe is one example. So in the 14th century, there was, and I do not know French, so all the French speakers, please forgive me. Le clos de Lembre in 1365. So this was a, I believe it was a wine brand back in the 14th century, and it now exists as part of the LVMH's portfolio. So this is a company with a very long history. We're talking several hundred years in some cases, and they just have all of these brands that have stood the test of time, which is just really fascinating. So for example, another set of their brands, Moet and Chandon, started in 1743, 1700s. Guess what? They're still selling Moet today in 2019. (laughs) So a couple hundred years later, people are still drinking the exact same brands of liquor, of alcohol. Hennessy, Hennessy was started in 1765, 1700s. Yet again, we have another brand that has stood the test of time, For hundreds of years that immediately gets my attention as a potential long-term investment right now Louis Vuitton was started in 1854 1800s the famous luggage company and we'll get into a little bit more of the history of how these companies came to be and then how they all came together into what is now the conglomerate of LVMH So first of all, let's talk about Moet and Chandon. Now, I'm not going to talk about all of their brands because, I mean, there's over 75 of them. There's a lot of different brands to cover, but we'll, we'll look at some of the major ones. So Moet and Chandon, it's one of the world's largest champagne producers. They make over 28 million bottles a year. It was established by a man named Claude Moet. And he used to sell wine to the nobles and aristocrats during King Louis XV's reign. (laughs) So yes, very, very old company, very old brand. He was literally selling his products to aristocrats of France back in the day. And this company also is responsible for the famous brand Dom Perignon, which is a vintage champagne and it's only harvested in the best years. So with many different wines or, or beverage, alcoholic beverages that are made from wine, you just harvest what you harvest and you hope that it's good. Well, this particular champagne, they'll only harvest it if they know that it's gonna be good. And on top of that, it requires at least 12 years of aging. So at a minimum, you're gonna harvest the grapes, only of the best quality, the finest quality, and then they will make it ferment into champagne and it has to age for at least 12 years. That's pretty impressive. So this is this is the kind of business that you don't just don't just start tomorrow, right? Like if you want to get into this industry, It's going to take a lot of time it's going to take a lot of planning you have to have expertise in order to make a champagne that would compete with Dom Perignon and then you would have to age it for many years in order to get similar characteristics of the beverage itself so that's that's pretty hard to get into Uh, it's not like even wine producers who get into winemaking if you have fertile soil and you have A vineyard and you have some expertise, you can start making wine in a, in a couple seasons, uh, once your, once your roots grow and, and your, and your grapes start, um, start your grape plants start, the vines start maturing basically. Um, and, and the reason I'm saying this is recently went to Napa Valley and it was awesome. Learned a lot about wine. So, Yeah, so you can't just muscle your way into the champagne business, at least not at the level that Dom Perignon is at. Now, moving on to another one of the companies that's now part of the namesake of the brands, Hennessy. So Hennessy is a cognac, and it was started by a man named Richard Hennessy in 1765 in Cognac, France. And one of the things that I'll just mention about Hennessy is currently now... It's really popular in hip-hop culture. There's a lot of rap songs, a lot of hip-hop songs that mention Hennessy, and so it's kind of become embedded within that culture to this day, which I think is really interesting. And so uh, that's one thing about this brand. Now, where does Louis Vuitton come from? So Louis Vuitton is not a brand of beverages. Louis Vuitton is known for its handbags, known for its leather goods. So designer Louis Vuitton, he started the firm back in 1864 in Paris, France, and he was just 16 years old when he decided to become a trunk master. So remember around this time, uh, we didn't have large corporations that had automated assembly lines, mass manufacturing all these different physical goods. You had different shops that were usually family owned, small businesses, that created handcrafted different types of goods. So you had coopers who made barrels, you had blacksmiths or silversmiths who made uh, things like silverware. You had trunk masters who made trunks and luggage and Louis Vuitton wanted to become a master of tr- of trunks. You wanted to be a trunk master. So, um, what he did uh, was once he wanted to make the finest quality available. Now keep in mind around this time as well that when people were traveling, if say you had to go from Paris, France to London, or another area of France, uh, you had to pack your things. So you needed good luggage. But it's not like today where you roll up to the airport and then someone throws your luggage inside a, a nice insulated, um structurally sound aircraft cabin and then it just sits there and then it gets put on uh a little belt and you pick it up at the airport like they didn't have that back then if you wanted to travel with things physical items you were going to travel by carriage or by boat or by train so good luggage was really important you had to have really sturdy materials You had to make sure that people weren't going to steal your stuff. So there was a lot more risk, in a sense, of having luggage back in these days. So Louis Vuitton, he started his workshop with 20 employees, and then he worked really hard at making really fine quality products. And then a few decades later, in 1900, he had nearly 100 employees. Now, his original workshop at Asnières, it still exists, and there are craftsmen that are there that still make leather goods and special orders for Louis Vuitton's company. So there's a lot of the history still intact for this brand, for this company. And they've expanded into many different products, which we'll get into in a minute. Now Vuitton and his son, they patented a lock system with two spring buckles on, on the lock and it was quote unquote unpickable and, The idea was to keep the trunk safe. Now, Louis Vuitton even challenged the great magician Houdini to escape from one of their trunks, which he never did. Uh, But it was interesting to me to research that because that's a testament to the quality of their products and the inventiveness of their products and, and what they were trying to achieve. So Louis Vuitton for decades, or sorry, excuse me, for centuries has been known for high quality Luggage for high quality handbags. Now, the famous LV monogram, you've probably seen that, the LV design. In 1896, it was invented and it's still iconic and it's used in products today. Not many brands, not many logos have survived for a hundred plus year time frame. But Louis Vuitton's is one of those. And so I think it's, it's really powerful that that still stands the test of time today. All right, so that's kind of the background of a bunch of these different brands. How did they come together? How did LVMH become the company that it is today? Well, you can't talk about LVMH without talking about one of the richest people in the world. In fact, I think he's the third richest person in the world and the richest person in Europe. And that is someone by the name of Bernard Arnault. Now, Bernard Arnault is a French businessman, and he took over his father's company and eventually bought the brand and company of Christian Dior. So over, over time, he's, he's buying up different businesses. Now, let's kind of take a sidestep back to the other brands and see how they kind of started merging before Bernard Alnault got a hold of them. So in 1971, Moet and Chandon merged with Hennessy to become Moet Hennessy. And in 1987, Louis Vuitton and Moet Hennessy merged to form LVMH, which became the largest luxury group in the world when they merged. Now, here's the problem. There was a conflict that emerged between the two CEOs uh, of of Moet and Hennessy, and Bernard, he started combining forces with Guinness, which is now known as Diego, so combined forces with that company to create a holding company that gradually started buying out LVMH's shares. Um, And because his goal was to keep this group together, basically to keep these businesses aligned. And this made him what's known as a blocking minority because it removed the power of the other shareholders to break up the group. So think about it. If you start buying up shares of a business, um, if you continually increase your ownership, well, the other owners, say if they want to break up the business, if they start owning less than 50% combined or or start owning a small enough percentage on an individual basis that it starts to uh, be overshadowed by your stake, well, then they can't have the power in making these major decisions. So Bernard Alnault, along with Guinness, was successful in gaining enough ownership to keep this group together. And then... What ultimately happened was that Bernard became chairman of the company in 1989. And since then, LVMH has acquired dozens of luxury brands and expanded its global reach. So Bernard Alnault is still the head of the company today, but he's done so much since then. During his tenure, LVMH has really blossomed into this really powerful, really strong collection of luxury brands. And in fact, I think they're probably one of the highest quality companies that I've ever studied so far. So uh, that's, that's pretty impressive. So where is LVMA today? What is an overview of their actual company? So right now, they total 75 Maisons or houses, and here's what they sell. They actually sell all different types of products. It's not just Moet and Hennessy and Louis Vuitton. They sell, broadly speaking, wine and spirits, fashion and leather goods, perfumes and cosmetics, watches and jewelry. They have a retail segment and then they have kind of this miscellaneous category called other activities. And I'll get into what that is. So here's the breakdown. Now in the wine and spirits segment, you've got brands like Moet and Chandon, uh, vuve Clicquot, which is another famous brand uh, of uh, alcohol, Hennessy in the Leather goods segment, you've got Louis Vuitton, Christian Dior, Givenchy, Fendi, Marc Jacobs. So some really strong brands there. And the perfume and cosmetics, you have a lot of interplay between this segment of the company and the, the uh, fashion and leather goods segment. So, for example, there's a Christian Dior perfume. Uh, there's a Givenchy perfume. They've also had the Fenty by Rihanna brand, which has proven to be really popular. So, allying with some celebrities in order to create different scents in cosmetic cosmetics. Uh, then there's the watches and jewelry segment. So you have brands like Bulgari, Tag Heuer, and Hublot, which are all pretty well known in the in the watch space. And you've got selective retailing. So, what is under selective retailing? Well, I was surprised to learn that. The makeup company, Sephora, is part of LVMH. So here in America, in a lot of malls, just walking around uh, in department stores, you'll see Sephora's uh, very commonly. And so all these cosmetic stores ultimately give their profits up to France, LVMH. (laughs) So something that I didn't know that was interesting. Uh, Another thing about the retailing segment is... If you've ever been on a cruise before, um, you will probably have noticed, especially if it's with one of the major cruise lines, like a Carnival or Royal Caribbean, they have stores on the ship. And many of these stores sell things like, guess what? Perfume, cosmetics, watches, and jewelry. And there's a really good chance that those brands are owned by LVMH. So they have retailing on cruise ships, which I think is a really interesting idea. It's fascinating from a business perspective because think about it. You kind of have a captive audience, right? It's even better than having a retail store in an airport. When you have a retail store in an airport, people are stuck there many times for hours and they get bored and they want to shop. So maybe they'll buy from you, but then ultimately they take their plane and they leave. They're there maybe a couple hours. But as far as a cruise ship, I mean, people book cruises for weeks at a time. So imagine being on board uh, with this mall, basically, uh, right next to you, and maybe you don't think much of it on day one or two, but day three or four, maybe you just get bored and want to buy something before you leave the ship. So I think this is a really interesting retail play for LVMH, and I just thought it was worth mentioning uh, because it is part of the business model and they do make money from it. Now, the other segment, this is kind of interesting. This is like the other luxury goods, <laughs> other luxury goods category, kind of random luxury things. So they have the group Les Echos, which are the publications. So they have different magazines and, and publications that they create that are luxury related, which is interesting because, of course, what are you going to advertise in your own publications? You're going to advertise your own Set of luxury brands. So that's interesting from a media and marketing perspective. They also have Cheval Blanc, which is a group of hotels. And I know recently they purchased the Belmont group of luxury hotels as well. So they started expanding into, into some, some sort of some hotels, but not a lot. It's not a big part of their business. They also have Royal Van Lent, which are luxury yachts. So they've got their hands in a lot of different things, but the main things are really the fashion and leather goods and the uh the wine and spirits I think are are really big. But we'll look at the breakdown in a second. So the interesting thing about this business is that they focus on a decentralized model. And think about your typical corporation. A typical corporation is the opposite. It's centralized you have a hierarchy of CEO, you have directors and vice presidents underneath them, and then they're running these different divisions, but they all they all kind of they all report up to the same authority. So if the CEO says I want all of my divisions to be doing XYZ, well then they'll all try to pivot and do that. It's very centralized. But with a decentralized organization Each division or each maison in this case has their own independence to make their creative and business decisions to a large part. The only thing that they're doing is when they make a profit, they just feed that profit up the chain up to the parent company. And then the parent company decides how to allocate the money between the different brands or the different companies. But the creative decisions are kept within the houses. And this is a key part of, I think, LVMH's is success. I think that this decentralized model really works because you're talking about fashion here. You're talking about luxury. You're talking about brands that have stood the test of time. If say you made wine since the 1300s and your family's been doing it and you know how to do it and you know how to sell it. And I come to you and I buy you out as an investor. Do you really want me telling you how to grow wine <laughs> or how to run your wine business? No, you just you just want money to fund your operations and scale it. But I'm going to let you do you, right? Because you've been doing it for centuries. So I think that's one thing that Bernard Alnault and his leadership team have realized is that they can be very successful by cultivating and uplifting these brands, not necessarily uh, making a centralized structure where they try to control everything letting each maison have its own power in deciding how to run their business and because they have so many houses even if one brand comes out of favor in the fashion world it's very likely that another brand that they own is very much within favor in the fashion world so if you remember we studied a couple luxury companies uh, in the past so we studied polo ralph Lauren. We studied also uh, what was it? Tapestry, uh, which owns Coach. Now, Ralph Lauren is just Ralph Lauren. Like if Ralph Lauren is out, of, goes out of style, then that's it. They're they're done. Their sales and their profits are going to go down significantly. And fashion changes from year to year, right? Also consider uh, Tapestry. So they own Coach. They own a couple other brands, but it's really just two or three brand main brands that they own. Um, if those brands go out of favor, then the stock is going to take a big hit. The business itself is going to take a big hit. With LVMH, you've got a totally different situation. You've got Hennessy. You've got Louis Vuitton. You've got Moet and Chandon. You've got Hublot watches. You've got Perfume by Rihanna. You've got all sorts of things that are feeding the bottom line. And so this is just how big and how integrated this business is. So this business is vertically integrated. So it helps control the quality and the image of the business. And also they're geographically diversified. So they have a third of their revenues coming from Asia. A quarter of them come from the United States. Another third come from Europe. And then the other 10% come from other places in the world and their businesses are diversified. So we talked about the different groups within LVMH. But here's how they actually split up as far as revenue. So 40% of the revenue comes from fashion and leather goods. 30% comes from retail, 10% from watches and jewelry, another 10% from wine and spirits, and another 10% from perfume and cosmetics. So it's pretty spread out. I mean, the business does rely heavily on retail and fashion and leather goods, but they still are pretty well diversified. And we'll also see in a second how one of these categories is actually about to change significantly. So they've got over 150,000 employees and they have over 4,600 stores spread all over the world. But think about that 4,600 stores. It's really not that much compared to a lot of other retailers or a lot of other brands or companies. I mean, think about Yum! Brands that we studied. They've got over 40,000 stores all over the world. But when you're a luxury conglomerate like LVMH, you don't, you don't need as many stores. You can just set up in the major cities where your customers are. You can set up in the places where people have money and people are, will travel to buy your products to a certain extent. So that's that's one thing about the business that's interesting is is they they have a lot of stores but not as many as I would have initially thought based on the size of the business itself so the market cap of the business is well over a hundred billion euros so another thing I like about this business is that management is focused on long-term owners so they have a shareholders club and What this is, is basically they have special events and special publications for their investors, for people who own shares of LVMH. And then beyond this, I found on their investor relations website that they have this rule where any share of LVMH that is held for more than three years gets double the voting rights. And when I read that, I was like, oh, I see. (laughs) That's pretty sweet, right? This, I was, I was reading this and I was like, okay, this is a business that prioritizes long-term ownership in its business. And you don't really see that incentivized much among management of many different companies. But LVMH does this. When I read this, I was like, wow, okay. Management is focused on long-term shareholder returns. They want people who are going to buy their stock and hold it for a long time And how do we know this? They're incentivizing it. They're saying, we'll give you double the voting rights if you hold your shares for more than three years. So this was very impressive to me. I've never seen anything like this. Uh, So that's one aspect of management that I'm really feeling right, right, right now. So let's look at the financials. How much money does this business actually make? It's great that they have all these brands. They're decentralized. They make all this money all these different ways. All right. How much, though? So for comparison purposes, we'll be looking at the years 2012 and fiscal 2018. So comparing this kind of six-year period. So back in 2012, the company made revenues of $28 billion. And in 2018, they made just under $47 billion. So pretty impressive for such a large company. They've increased their revenues at a 9% annual growth rate which that alone is a good sign, right? If a, comp- if a company that large is increasing their revenues by almost double digits, that that's, shows some strength in their business. Now, I also looked at the revenue growth within the different business segments, and there's a lot of numbers there, so I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of that, but suffice it to say that the biggest drivers of revenue are the, the fashion and leather goods. So, This past year, they brought in $18 billion and selective retailing brought in $13 billion. So those are the biggest components of revenue. Um, And then the other components have grown as well. It looks like all of the segments of the business have grown at a pretty even rate, more or less, um, with fastened and leather goods and selective retailing growing the fastest. Now, the other category, (laughs) it actually doesn't make money. So all those yachts and hotels... So that group does not make money as of right now. So they actually lost $600 million in 2018. And it's the only segment of the business that was not profitable. Every other segment of the business was definitely profitable. So speaking of profit, how much overall profit does the business make? Well, again, using our comparison years of 2012 and 2018, in 2012, they made just about $3.5 billion in profit. And in 2018, it's about $6.5 billion in profit, and that's an 11% annual growth rate in profit. Now, this is wonderful, but what about some of the things that we really care about as investors? What about earnings per share? So this is a key to identifying potential dilution of the shareholders um, if earnings per share is not keeping up with the profit of the business itself overall. So earnings per share went from $6.86 in 2012 up to $12.61 in 2018. And this is about a 10.5 annual growth rate. So it's been keeping pretty strong pace with the overall profit of the business, which is wonderful. That means that management has not been diluting shareholders significantly, and it's a good sign. Also, a good sign is that they pay a dividend that it looks like it's about half of the profits. Um, And that has been growing by 13% annually over the past several years. So strong double-digit dividend growth. Guess what? That's a sign of a healthy business. And also, what's more than that, I looked at the dividend history back during the Great Recession between the years 2007, 2008, 2009, and guess what? They actually held their dividend steady and even raised it. So in 2007, they kept their dividend steady between 07 and 08, and then between 08 and 09, they actually raised their dividend a little bit by five cents a share. So to me, that's another sign of a really strong business when you're able to raise your payoffs to shareholders during a challenging, challenging economic environment. Um, That's what I wanna see. I wanna see business performance when times get tough too, not just right now when times have been relatively good, especially in the luxury sector. Now, also, I wanted to look at the balance sheet of this business. How much debt did this business have? Now, the debt has increased. So, it's gone from over $4 billion in 2012 to over $5.5 billion in 2018. And actually, in 2019, I looked up the most recent numbers. It's just under $9 billion in debt. So, they have jumped the debt significantly, but I think that's because they're trying to make a lot of investments right now. And... Uh, It looks like their ratios of debt to equity have been relatively reasonable over the years. Um, And so it's not too concerning, especially compared to a lot of businesses that we study on this podcast. One metric that I do want to look at also is free cash flow. So remember, free cash flow is the amount of money that the business is making After everything is paid, so without any sort of obligations attached to it, without debt attached, debt interest payments attached to it, without any sort of marketing expenses or product R&D or anything like that. So the amount of free cash that the business generates. 2012, it was $2.5 billion. 2018, it was $5.5 billion. That's a 14% annual growth rate in the free cash flow. Again, another great sign of a healthy, thriving business. And then just to double check, I looked at the share dilution. Just to double check, shares really weren't being diluted too much. And in 2012, they had over 724 million shares outstanding. In 2019, they had 735 million shares outstanding. So a little bit of dilution, but really quite insignificant. That's... 0.2% 0.2% year-over-year dilution. It's virtually nothing. So management, they don't buy back shares, but they don't really issue shares either. So this is this is a company that takes its long-term shareholders seriously. And I do think it's worth noting that the Arnault family group, they do own 63% of the voting rights of the company. So it is a family-owned business um, at the end of the day. So keep that in mind. Now, where is the stock trading right now? So keep in mind that LVMH, for all my U.S. listeners, it does not trade on the New York Stock Exchange. It does not trade on the NASDAQ um, per se. There, you can get it um, over the counter, but it actually, its home base is in France, right? On France's stock market. So it trades currently at around 410 euro per share and that's about 32 times 2018 earnings. So so that's pretty pricey even for an amazing business like this. And the reason I say that, I mean, just 11 months ago before I'm recording this, it was trading at 243 euro per share. So not quite half the price, but pretty close. That was 19 times 2018 earnings. So the stock market has been on a, a pretty strong rally this year, and uh, Louis Vuitton, Moet, Hennessy has been no exception. It's nearly doubled in price in just a single year. So now I do not think is the time to necessarily buy a business like this, um, just because it is pretty expensive, and it's, it's a really large company, so it's not like it's going to grow at 30% a year. If it was growing at 30% a year pretty reliably, I would say pretty strong deal. Uh, but it's not. It's growing in the low double digits. You know, I, I would expect this business to grow by around 10% over long periods of time, uh, which is really impressive for a business of this size and of this caliber. So, But another thing to notice is that a business like this, because it's so high quality, it's not going to go on sale that often. But it is reasonably priced at times, as evidenced by those numbers I just shared with you, 11 months ago, it was trading at around 19 times earnings. I'm pretty sure I would pay 19 times earnings for this business. It's not going to get me extremely high returns, but I do believe that an investor would get solid double-digit returns at that price point. And indeed, they have, right? But that was mainly due to price-to-earnings ratio expansion, but also due to the growth of the business itself. The business itself is strong. So if we look at the different components of return in this case, it pays about a one and a half percent dividend right now. It's not buying back any shares, so no contribution to the return from that. And then the organic earnings per share growth, I would expect over the long term to grow at around a 10% rate. So you add these together, you get about 11 and percent annual rate of return on the business itself. Now, again, I think from this price point, the stock is expensive, I think PE compression could half investor results to the five to 6% range. But even with this, I think long-term owners would be okay. I think if you were to purchase this stock today and hold it for a decade, I think things would ultimately work out. And especially if you extend the time horizon to 15 or 20 years, I mean, this business is going to be around 15 to 20 years from now. I mean, There's no guarantees in life. I do not know that. I don't know the future, but come on, it, (laughs) it's as close to a guarantee as anything in my book. It has brands dating back centuries and centuries. So who knows? Maybe it won't be in its current form, but the brands are strong, really strong, and they've lasted for many generations. So to me, that is the definition of stability. (laughs) So that's an overview of LVMH. I think it's, it's a beautiful business. And I want to end with something that I learned years ago from uh, reading another investor's blog. Uh, his name is Joshua Kennan. And he was talking about long-term dividend stocks. But at the end of the day, I think in my perspective, he was really talking about what are the highest quality businesses in the world. And how do you identify the highest quality businesses in the world? And this is something that stuck with me so much that I wrote it down and I've tried to just keep in my memory all of these different, different aspects of a business that make it truly stand out above the rest. So we're talking about the top 1% of businesses in the world. How do we identify those? And so here are some thoughts that I learned from, uh, from Joshua Kennan. So number one is a list of eight things. Number one, significant cash generator in currencies worldwide. So geographic diversification, got to have that. Can't rely on any single economy. Number two, a collection of companies, not just one business. So diversified across product lines and different services. So if one business line fails, another business line can make up for it. Diversification. Number three, old with stable institutional dynamics and a growth culture. Mm. To me, this is a really big filter that immediately cuts a lot of companies out of consideration. If your business is not old, it hasn't proven itself yet. Right? In many ways, it hasn't proven itself. Now you can get extremely high returns with some of the old, with some of the younger businesses because they have a lot of growth ahead of them, and. You know, we talk about some of those companies on this podcast, but as far as high quality, as far as high stability and solid growth, you're going to want to look for an old business. I like the old businesses too, as well as the young ones, because they've, they've already proven themselves. They're making money and they've been doing so in many cases for centuries. Um, And so, yeah, so that's number three, number four. Good record of returning cash to shareholders. These are things like dividends, share buybacks, and spinoffs. So if a company truly cares about its shareholders, eventually it will return cash to shareholders. It will return cash to shareholders eventually. And this doesn't necessarily have to be in the form of a dividend. It could be a spinoff. It could be buying back stock. There are multiple ways. But management has to show that they care about giving money back to the people who own their stock. That's important. Very important. Number five, considerable pricing power to protect against inflation. (laughs) I love this one because it's one of the most no brainer aspects of investing to me. And that is if you have a business that can increase its prices and your customers don't care, well, guess what? You have pricing power. <laughs> you can immediately increase your bottom line by increasing your top line. And that's, that's a very strong indicator of brand strength to me. Uh, there are businesses that do this, businesses like Starbucks, businesses like Tiffany & Co., businesses like companies within LVMH's umbrella. Number six, unparalleled distribution systems. Remember, it's not enough to make the best product or have the best service. You have to be able to get it to your customers efficiently. This is one of the reasons why Coca-Cola has been so successful over the decades. It's because they have built up this amazing distribution system with their bottlers networking all across the world in order to ship their products to consumers right where they are. And so distribution systems... You can't forget about that. Number seven, consumers are deeply and passionately connected to the products and services of the business. Deeply and passionately connected. Think about a Louis Vuitton handbag. That's a status symbol. Think about a Hublot watch. That's a status symbol. Or Rihanna's perfume. That's a status symbol. These are products that people really desire and are willing to spend thousands upon thousands of dollars acquiring them in many cases. And that has not changed over the years. That has been a very consistent fact. So people who buy luxury brands, they're going to keep buying luxury brands over the long term. Why? Because they have money. Number eight, lasting business model that is unlikely to change with technology. Let's look at LVMH again. Louis Vuitton still making handbags centuries later. (laughs) The internet has come. Uh, Wars have started and ended. Presidents and politicians have been elected and put out of office. Guess what? Louis Vuitton is still making handbags. Guess what? Moet and Hennessy are still making Dom Perignon and cognac. (laughs) people are still buying these products they're not that likely to change with technology and in fact technology simply improves the production and distribution of these products so that's the last point but i just i wanted to bring this up because i think that lvmh meets all of these criteria and there are not very many businesses in the world that can do that But I have been impressed with studying LVMH. I think they're one of the highest quality businesses in the world, just straight up. So uh, that's that's how I feel about it. Not to mention, they recently reached an agreement to acquire a company we talked about a few weeks ago, Tiffany & Company. So the legendary American jeweler, they're going to be increasing their market share of the worldwide jewelry market immediately. By making that purchase, so another company I admire, Tiffany and Company, is being brought into the fold in a sixteen billion dollar transaction, and LVMH is buying it. It's been confirmed, so it's going to close in two thousand twenty. I think that'll be great for existing Tiffany shareholders. That their, their stock price has gone up a lot since that deal was announced. So you know, good good for everyone who's was a Tiffany shareholder or is a Tiffany shareholder. And then LVMH, they, I think they're gonna, they can be trusted well with that brand because they have proven themselves to be good stewards of capital and of intellectual capital and of creative capital with all of their other brands. So uh, I think they're in good hands. So I was kind of happy to see that such a high-quality company is buying another high-quality company that I admire so yeah, LVMH, amazing company. I think it's, I still think it's pricey right now. I mean, even for one of the best businesses in the world, it's, it's not growing like crazy. So paying 32 times earnings probably doesn't make sense right now, but there will come a time when it is reasonably priced. So, uh, I'll wait for that day. <laughs> so I'll leave you with that. Thank you so much for listening to the Stock Stories podcast. I appreciate you joining me this week, and for just listening to all my ideas. And hopefully, you can hopefully, I'm coming across that you could hear my my passion for understanding these businesses and understanding how to look at them as an investor. I just love doing this, and yeah, the research takes a lot of effort. But at the end of the day, when I'm up here in front of the mic talking to you and remembering all of the things that I've learned while studying these businesses. It's just really exciting to me. So thank you for listening and supporting the show. Uh, If you want to reach out to me, you can email me at alex at stockstoriespodcast.com or send me a direct message on Instagram. I love getting those DMs from you guys. It really makes my day. So uh, my Instagram handle is stockstories1. That's stock stories and the number one you can follow me on there if you're so inclined and yeah I, thanks thanks again for listening and we will see you next week